could get the fans on in here, that would probably be good. Good. What do you think? Yeah? All right, that's good. <clears throat> Maybe before we start, we'll just take a minute and have a prayer for our sister who passed out in the back and some uh, emergency people came and took her to the hospital. And uh, let's, let's just bow for a second. Gracious Father in heaven, we just lift our sister up before you, and we ask that uh, you would be with her now in her hour of need, that you would give wisdom to those who are serving her, and that your healing hand would touch her for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> we got some, an amen crowd today. <laughs> you sure do. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, we're going to kind of begin there. In uh, Hebrews chapter 11, get the TVs on. Okay, good. All right. That's very interesting. Okay. All righty. There we go. Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> The last time we were together, we talked about this idea that God has always had a remnant. God has always had a remnant. And we have a tendency to think of remnant as kind of this end time sort of thing. But God has always had a remnant. Read straight back there. At creation, soon after, man falls, right? But all the way back to that point, there have always been only two kinds of people. Only two kinds. And right to the very end, there will only be two kinds of people. Right? They can be summed up very carefully, very simply, by Scripture, over and over repeated again, as believers and unbelievers. That's as simple as that. Right? And as we look right there at the very beginning in Genesis, we see that kind of played out in two characters, as we mentioned last time. The first character being Abel as the believer, and then his brother Cain as the unbeliever. Now, to say that Cain's an unbeliever 
is somewhat of a nuance, right? Because he believed, obviously, in God, or else he wouldn't have brought an offering, right? But his attempt is to modify God's plan, modify God's directives. God said, here's what you'll do. You'll bring a sacrifice, and that sacrifice will be, we got a little bit of reverb coming. You hear that? See if you can fix that. We've got um, modify God's plan so that um, it was in a custom with what Cain wanted to do as opposed to Abel. Abel, by faith, brought the lamb representing the Messiah that would come and die on his behalf. Cain offered up the fruit or the works of his own hands in an attempt, in a sense, to appease God. And thus, as we look around the world, particularly at world's religions, we see those two belief systems throughout all of the religions of the world. Faith in the meritorious sacrifice of God's Son or an attempt to appease God, even if it's not Christianity. Isn't that true? By faith, Hebrews 11, chapter, or 11 verse 4 tells us, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through the which he obtained witness he what? He obtained a witness that he was what? That he was righteous. Now, was it Abel who was righteous? It was God that was righteous. You see that? Abel, by faith, took hold of the righteous sacrifice yet to come. And thus, because by faith he did that, God saw him as righteous. Amen? And thus there have always been those two kinds of people. We continue looking through Scripture. We see Cain and Abel as the first two representatives, but then we see Enoch, and we see Noah, and we see Job, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, and the like. And although all of them human, although all of them having their faults, right? They were found among the remnant. Last time we also discussed that there were three uses by the prophets over and over through Scripture concerning this word remnant. There's a historical use that historical use has to do with those who were, particularly after we see the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, particularly those who are physically descendants of Abraham. There's that historical use. We would call them Israelites, or we might call them Jews today, right? They're physically descendants of Abraham. Some of us might even be physical descendants of Abraham and not even know it. Isn't that true? All right. The other way was the spiritual or the faithful descendants of Abraham. Those who, by faith, like Abraham, accepted the truth. 
and walked in it. We see uh, as the children of Israel are coming out of the land of Egypt and we're looking at them, we might say that a couple people who represent the spiritual or faithful uh, remnant would be whom? Right there as they're coming out of Egypt, particularly a few days in, but less than 40 years. Hint. Who's that? Joshua and Caleb, right? How many people are sent off into the promised land? Ten. Isn't that right? How many of them actually believe? Two, Joshua and Caleb. Right? What happens to the rest of those who don't believe? They fall in the desert over the next 40 years. Later on, we see Elijah who thinks that he's all alone, and God tells him, no, there are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. At the carrying away into Babylon, we might then say, Daniel and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ezekiel, afterwards, maybe um, Nehemiah, Ezra, you're getting the picture, right? There have always been these Physical descendants, but among the physical descendants, the spiritual descendants. And then we also pointed out this last one. There's an eschatological remnant. And what is that? What's a eschatology, the big word? Eschatology. The study of, like biology, the study of life. Eschatology, the study of end time events. Fancy little word, right? So when we say that there's an eschatological remnant, we're saying that there's a remnant all the way at the end of time that's referred to again and again prophetically through Scripture as well. Um, Something like that. Okay, we see this future uh, implication found in the book of Daniel. Right there in Daniel 7, verse 25. It says, he shall speak pompous words. Who's the he? The little horn. The little horn. There in Daniel chapter 7. He shall speak pompous words. And those pompous words are against whom? They're against the Most High. But then not only does he speak pompous words against the Most High, but it says here that he persecutes whom? The saints of the Most High. So he speaks pompous words, and then he persecutes the saints of the Most High, and he shall intend to change times and laws. So we're not going to get into a big definition of who the little horn is and all of this kind of stuff today. We're focusing more on the remnant, and I want you to focus and see, realize, that the word remnant is not used here. Instead, the group of people who are being persecuted by that little horn power, who speaks pompous words against God, is, are called what? The saints. The saints. Now, the Hebrew word there is kaddish which means holy one or saint. Kaddish. 
The word holy in Hebrew is also kaddish. A saint is a person who is holy. Isn't that interesting? Let's ask the question. Was Abel holy? Was he holy? See, we're, oh, we're just we're worried about answering that question. The answer is yes, because it said, by faith, he brought the sacrifice, right? And through the which he was what? Righteous. What does righteous mean? Right doing. That's what it means. He obtained the witness. He obtained the witness that he was right doing. You get it? The Bible says that the saints are going to be those who inherit the kingdom. How many of you would like to be a saint? How many of you consider yourself saintly? Here's the problem. That word has been given a false definition. We have this idea that the word saintly means somebody who's been deemed to be a saint and someone who's attained to some status of goodness that none of us would hope to attain to. And yet, the New Testament, over and over, Paul particularly, writing to the various churches, to the saints that are in Corinth, to the saints that are in Rome, to the saints that are in Galatia. Right? Who's that? These people that have been deemed as saints and, you know, have a lit their name in a holy list and they've attained it. The faithful. The faithful. What is a saint? A saint is a person who has, like Abel, acknowledged their sin and brought the lamb. Amen? From a Christian perspective, a saint then is a person who has acknowledged their sin. When we acknowledge our sin, we call that what? What, what do we call that? Confession. We have confessed our sin, right? And we believe that since we have confessed our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sin. If my sin is forgiven, am I a sinner? Again, scared. Why, why, why are we scared? If my sin is forgiven, am I a sinner? No, because my sin has been forgiven. How far away is it? As far as the east is from the west. As far as the heavens are above, right? So far as he removed our sin from us. When I've confessed my sin, am I a sinner? The answer is no. Why? Because he has forgiven me my sin. 
Not only does God promise to forgive me my sin, He promises also to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. On what? Righteousness? All unrighteousness. Therefore, if He cleanses me from unrighteousness, then I guess I could remove the un. Right? I guess if he's cleansed me from all unrighteousness and I take away the un, then I guess that means I'm all righteous. Do you get that? We have this tendency to think that that's us. That we have to attain to that. No, Jesus did that. That's the whole entire point. Abel brought his lamb, recognizing that he was unrighteous. Cain, being also unrighteous, brought what? The works of his own hands as an attempt to make appeasement for his unrighteousness. What did God say to that? Sorry, Cain, I can't accept that offering. Only the righteousness of Christ is the offering I accept. And that's it. Right? Thus Abel obtained the witness that he was righteous, while Cain what? Well, I'll tell you what. Here's what God said to Cain. He said... Why has your countenance fallen? Why, why, why are you upset because I didn't receive what I cannot receive? And then he told him, if you do right. What does that mean? Bring a, a lamb. If you acknowledge your sin and you bring the sacrifice of the lamb on your behalf and thus by faith acknowledge that it is the Lamb that covers your transgressions, as opposed to you trying to appease me for your transgressions, then I will receive you. But then he told Cain what? Sin lies where? At your door, and you shall be what? The master of it. In other words, he's telling Cain, the choice is freely yours, my friend. You can choose to accept the free gift of grace through the sacrifice of the lamb that I offer you, or you can choose not to. The choice is yours. Thus, there have always been two kinds of people. Let's go back to this. There is a little horn. This is prophecy. That little horn is speaking pompous words against God, right? And just like Cain, he decides to be angry against those who obtain the witness that they are righteous. That's what a saint is. Do you get it? Somebody who simply by faith have received the grace 
of forgiveness that God has given to them. Versus those, the little horn, who try to earn it through their rituals and through their attempted appeasements and their twistings and turnings of God's word. He's upset, and he goes to make war with the saints, Kaddish, the holy ones, and those, he persecutes those saints for how long? A time, times, and a half a time. You recognize that, Adventist? You should, you should recognize it. How long is that period of time? 1,260 years. Okay? Now, let's jump off to another text. This time, eschatologically, right? Because we go back there to Daniel for just a second, and we look at that, we realize that the little horn can't possibly persecute until he exists. Isn't that true? And we know that the little horn doesn't exist until the ten horns exist. And we know the ten horns don't exist until the beast upon which they are exists, which is Rome. And then the ten horns are the divisions of Rome. And then the little horn comes up among them and after them. You get it? And we know that that little horn began in what year? Anyone? 538, says a confident person from the back. The answer is yes. 538. Right? So therefore, eschatologically, these are far in the future of when Daniel's writing those words, but also future of the cross of Calvary and the beginning of the Christian church. Thus, this is an eschatological prophecy of people who will come in the future. Now, he persecutes those people after he arises in 538 for 1,260 years off to Revelation. Now, we know Revelation is particularly the book about whom? Yes, the spans of Christian time, but particularly about those people who exist when? The end of time, just as Christ comes. Now, look at this, what it says. And the woman, the who? The woman. Now, look at this woman. If you look down just a little bit, there's something else in blue. It says there's a times, times, and a half a time associated with that woman. There are two women in the book of Revelation. There is a pure woman. And then there's an adulterated woman. Right? There's a pure woman and an adulterated woman. This woman in Revelation 12 is the pure woman. This woman was given two wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished. How long is she nourished? For a times, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Same time frame concerning the little horn and the persecution of that little horn of whom? Back in Daniel? 
Who is he persecuting? The saints. This woman, we know from Scripture, represents the church. In this sense, an eschatological church, but in a broader sense, she has represented everyone from Abel through history. The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, she is representing she has represented everyone. God's faithful people, the word church simply means what? Congregation. A congregation is a group or a gathering of people. That's all it is, an assembly of people. In this particular case, the woman, the pure woman, represents those whose law have by faith accepted Jesus Christ and they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You get that? Now, she flies into the wilderness, and this is after 538, isn't it? Right? She flies into the wilderness, and she has a place there for a times, times, and a half a times. There's hagios, which is the Greek word for the same thing of kaddish that we saw in Hebrew just a few minutes ago. Now let's look a little further, a couple verses later, and it says that the dragon is wroth with the woman. Who's the dragon? Satan. The Bible tells us right there, we're not guessing. The dragon, Satan, is wroth with the woman. Remember back in Daniel, the little horn was mad at God's people. Here the dragon is mad at God's people. Why was the little horn mad at God's people? Because they represent what? The truth of accepting the grace and the mercy of God by faith. This dragon is also wroth with God's people. Why? Again, they represent the truth of those people who, by faith, have accepted the grace and mercy that God has offered to them, and thus they obtain the witness that they're righteous. Satan doesn't want them to have that witness. He's wroth with the woman, and he goes, because she's given two wings of an eagle to fly off in for times, times, and dividing times, 1,260 years. You see the math down there, from 538 to 1798. Right, And you also see some other time frames, the 1,260 years, the times, and the 42 months are all the same and have to do with a similar thing. And the dragon is wroth with the woman, and he makes war with whom? The remnant of her seed. Thus, the remnant of her seed, here in Revelation, are the saints of Daniel chapter 7. You see that? The remnant are the saints. The saints are the remnant. Who are the saints? Holy people? Yes. Are you holy today? Are you holy today? What would make you holy today? 
There's a lot of tension. We're afraid of these ideas. For some reason, we're afraid of these ideas. Why is that? Here's why. You look, in a sense, in the mirror. And you see your stain. And you recognize your propensity towards sin. Did Abel inherit the same propensity? What about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They had the same propensity as is you. And yet God calls them saints. When you look in that mirror, you're looking at yourself instead of at Christ. Are you holy today? What would it take? Simply this. Lord, I am unrighteous. Thou are wholly righteous. Forgive me, I ask, my transgressions. I receive Thy righteous gift, which covers my unrighteousness. Thus, in you, Lord, I am forgiven, and my unrighteousness has become righteousness. Thus, I have the witness, not only that I am righteous, but that I am a saint, and the word saint means holy. And the only reason you're not righteous is if you haven't confessed. And turned from your sin. It's that simple. If you've confessed your sin and you've turned from your sin, when you get up off your knees... You are righteous in Jesus Christ. The one who's whispering at you and telling you that you're not good enough and that you'll never be good enough is the one who whispered at Cain. And God said the choice was yours, Cain. The choice is yours. Receive my son, the father says. It's that simple. Don't look at you. Turn to Christ. Not only does he promise if you confess your sins, he's able and just to forgive your sins, but he promises what? He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The dragon is wroth with those who have received that. He goes to make war with the remnant of her seed. 
What do they do? They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The remnant have always kept the commandments of God. But I have not kept the commandments of God, Lord. I made a mistake. So did Abel. That's why he brought a lamb. (coughs) Amen? (coughs) Which part do you not believe? Do you not believe that God forgives you? Or do you not believe that he can keep you from sinning? Do you get that? Which of those two don't you believe? Because if he can't do both of those, he's not God. He's able to keep you from sinning and to present you faultless. Unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. Do you believe that? Then receive it. Then receive it and hold God's feet to the fire. What? Yes. God promised that if you confessed, he would cleanse you. Not from some, but from all unrighteousness. Amen? Guess what? I'm a work in progress. Amen? But I choose not to stare at who I was or even who I am. You get it? But who God is able to make me and he has promised. And he did more than promise. He went all in. The dragon is wroth with those who believe these things. And he goes to make war with those who keep God's commandments, not because they have to, not because they want to appease God, but because God has begun a process of writing his law on the surface of their heart. His covenant. Amen? James. He says this in chapter 2. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Amen? Do I make mistakes? I sure do. Has God changed me? He certainly has. He certainly has. Which one of your sins is greater than God? None of them. That's right. Exactly. Did you hear that? Out of the mouth of... None of them is greater than God. Save one, my friend. And here it is. The one you won't let him. 
Why has your countenance fallen? If you by faith receive Christ, will you not be received? Sin lies at your door, and you can be the master of it. Receive it by faith. Amen? We read on. Romans chapter 2. Concerning this remnant, Paul says this, for he is not a Jew who is one what? Outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is what? Outward in the flesh. Get that. Get it. Those people living over there in the Middle East calling themselves Jews, this is not anti-Semitism. The ones who are physical descendants are not those who are the descendants of Abraham. This is not anti-Semitism. This is scripture and it's the truth. There are lots and lots of physical descendants who are not spiritual descendants. It's always been that way from Cain and Abel. There are lots of physical descendants of Adam who were not Abel's. Do you get it? There are lots of physical descendants of Abraham who were not spiritual descendants. Amen? Amen. In fact, most of them fell in the desert. Isn't that true? It's always been this way. Paul says this, himself a Jew, a Benjamite. He says this, for he is not a Jew who is one what? Outwardly, that's talking about physically, right? Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one what? Inwardly. He is a Jew who is what? Inwardly. And circumcision is that of what? Of the heart in the Spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 9, verse 6 says this, They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. What does that mean? Verse 8 explains it of the same chapter. Romans 9, verse 8. That is, Paul says, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. You see that? They are not all Israel who are of Israel. The of Israel is talking about what? The physical descendants, right? The children of the promise is talking about whom? The spiritual descendants. Galatians, Paul follows up with this same idea. Now we, brethren, 
as Isaac was, are children of the promise. Who's Paul talking to here? Is he talking to just Jews? Or is he talking to a mix of Jews and Gentile believers? A mix of Jews and Gentile believers. And he's telling those Gentile believers, as he does back in Romans chapter 11, that there are two trees, a natural olive tree and a wild olive tree, and those who believed that were part of the wild olive tree were cut off and grafted into the natural olive tree, contrary to their nature. But those who were part of the natural olive tree who did not believe, what was the standard? Faith. Are cut off. You see that? So although they were physically part of the olive tree, They weren't spiritually part of the tree, therefore they were cut off. Because in the end, that family tree of Abraham, here represented by Isaac, is made up only of spiritual believers, the remnant. You see that? Now, brethren, as Isaac was, we, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. For in Christ Jesus, neither Circumcision, physical descendants, nor uncircumcision, physical descendants, right? Avails anything, but rather what? Faith working, how? Through love. Right? You could keep the Sabbath, your whole entire Seventh-day Adventist life, and not be saved. Because that would be Cain. You get it? Let's say another thing. It doesn't matter whatsoever what generation Seventh day Adventist you are. It doesn't matter. I don't know, fourth generation, who cares? God doesn't. You know why? God has no grandchildren. None. The Jews would say the same thing. I'm a tenth generation from such and such. Who cares? It doesn't matter that you're from Abraham. Do you have the faith of Abraham? Jesus asked. Do you have the faith of Abraham? In fact, the Gentiles who had the faith of Abraham, they were the ones who were saved. Look at this. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you become a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become what? Uncircumcision. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. You get it? It's those who have actually heard and received by faith and are being changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their life. And that's it. The spiritual remnant. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, 
who do not have the law, they don't have the scriptures, they don't have the Bible, they don't, by nature do the things that are in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to whom? To themselves. And they show the law, works of the law, written where? In their hearts. Isaiah agreed with this idea when he said this, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Who are those others? You should read the rest of Isaiah 56, the first seven verses. You should read those. Who were they? Foreigners. Gathered to God's people. Why? Because they, hearing, received by faith the message. While the children, the physical children and descendants, rejected it. God says, I'm not going after the physical descendants of Abraham. I'm going after those who believe. The woman, the remnant, has always been those like Abel throughout time. Thus God calls his children out of Babylon. He calls them out. What's interesting, I'll leave that. There's an interesting period of this between Isaiah we realize that Isaiah right here is speaking these words as the children of Israel are rejecting the message. They're rejecting the call of God through his prophets to repent and to turn back. God is warning them they're going to end up in, in captivity in Babylon. Do they repent? No, they don't. They don't listen. But yet there's a remnant within the remnant that are carried off. Daniel and his friends are faithful. Ezra and Nehemiah come out on the other side of it, along with others, and they rebuild the temple. Malachi, you might not be aware, was a contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so were all those, all those other minor prophets that are there at the end. From Malachi to Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of quietude. No prophet is in the land. God is not speaking to his physical descendant children. How long? 400 years. The next prophet to arise on the scene is whom? John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's message is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They send a delegation out. The delegation asks, Are you the pro that prophet? Are you Elijah? John the Baptist says, no. Jesus later says, if you will receive it, I will tell you John is that prophet. 
400 years, catch this, 400 years. We are now at the baptism of Jesus, entering into the last week of the physical Jews' probationary period. That back in Daniel chapter 9, God had told them 70 weeks are determined unto thy people to make an end of sin, to anoint the most holy, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Jesus is standing there at the beginning of the last week that he makes a covenant with many. And in the midst of that week, three and a half years later, he's cut off, just as Daniel chapter 9 says, not for himself, but for many. Sacrifice and offering ends as the veil of the temple is rent in two. Three and a half years later, upon the witness of Stephen, who conveys to the gathered leader 